Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. This episode's conversation is about the novel The Hound of the Baskervilles by author Conan Doyle, and I'm joined by our Novel Conversations readers, Katie Portile and Gregory James. Katie, Greg, welcome. Hi, thank you. Thanks, Frank. Glad to be here. <laughs> Glad to have you both here to have this conversation with me. Before we get started, I want to give a quick introduction to our novel. The Hound of the Baskervilles is the third of the four crime novels by British writer Arthur Conan Doyle featuring the detective Sherlock Holmes. Originally serialized in The Strand magazine from August 1901 to April 1902, it was published in book form in 1902. The novel is set in 1889, largely on Dartmoor in Devon in England's West Country, and tells the story of an attempted murder inspired by the legend of a fearsome, diabolical hound of supernatural origin. It was the first Sherlock Holmes tale after the detective's shocking, quote, death in the story The Final Problem from 1893, but was set prior to his demise. The popularity of The Hound of the Baskervilles helped pave the way for Holmes' appearance in later works. Gregory, start us off. The first chapter is appropriately titled Mr. Sherlock Holmes, and it introduces us to the great detective while describing his abilities and comparing him to Dr. Watson. Katie, what do we generally know about this famous detective? Well, we know he has a keen eye and is observation and intuition personified. And though he takes a bit of a backseat to Watson in this story, we always feel his presence. But Katie, don't forget his trademark hat and pipe. The deerstalker hat was indeed a Conan Doyle trademark, but it was the movies that turned the pipe into the full, bent, white meerschaum. In the four stories, there are at least three kinds of pipes mentioned. And cigars. That's right. He, He smoked more cigars, I think, than pipes in some of those stories. Well, Greg, what about Dr. Watson? So he's the novel's other protagonist and the narrator of the story. Dr. Watson is the sidekick to Holmes and longtime chronicler of the detective's adventures. In this novel, Watson tries his hand at Holmes's game, expressing his eagerness to please and impress the master by solving such a baffling case. As sidekick and apprentice to Holmes, Watson acts as a foil for Holmes's genius and as a stand-in for us, the awestruck audience. We connect with Watson both by virtue of his narration and his common-sense analysis of the situation, but Holmes will always be able to trump Watson and us, providing more insight, analysis, and cleverness. Holmes always has an insider's edge. Conan Doyle always gives Holmes an advantage. All right, with those introductions, Katie, how does our story actually start? We first glimpse Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson in their home office at 221B Baker Street, London. Watson examines a mysterious cane left in the office by an unknown visitor, and Holmes asks Watson what he makes of the cane, and Watson declares that his friend must have eyes on the back of his head since he saw what he was doing. Holmes admits that he saw Watson's reflection in the coffee service. Watson offers up his theory as to the origin of the walking stick, declaring that the inscription, quote, to James Mortimer, MRCS, from his friends of the CCH suggests an elderly doctor who was awarded the object after years of faithful service. Holmes encourages Watson's speculation, and the doctor continues, saying that the well-worn stick implies a country practitioner who walks about quite a bit. In addition, the CCH, he suggests, is probably the mark of a local hunt group to whom Mortimer provided some service. MRCS, membership of the Royal College of Surgeons. Holmes congratulates Watson and goes on to examine the cane himself as Watson basks in the glory of Holmes's compliment. However, Holmes quickly contradicts almost all of Watson's conclusions. (laughs) So much for the compliment. (laughs) Holmes suggests that while the owner is clearly a country practitioner, CCH actually means Charing Cross Hospital. The cane was probably presented on the occasion of the man's retirement from the hospital, and only a young man would have retired from a successful city practice to move to a rural one. And then amazingly, Holmes goes on to suggest that the man must possess a small spaniel given the bite marks on the cane. And then he playfully announces the appearance of master and dog at their front door. As we mentioned, Colin Doyle gives Holmes an advantage. In this case, Holmes determines the size and breed of Mortimer's dog because he sees the animal outside the window. 
Dr. Mortimer arrives, introduces himself, and announces his desire to consult with, quote, the second highest expert in Europe, a moniker which Holmes disputes. I can imagine. Second highest? Who's the first? <laughs> to quote, to the man of a precisely scientific mind, the work of Monsieur Bertillon must always appeal strongly. I'm sure Holmes loves that. <laughs> he suggests that Dr. Mortimer consult Monsieur Bertillon then. But Mortimer says, I said, sir, to the scientific mind, but as a practical man of affairs, it is acknowledged that you stand alone. And what else do we learn about Dr. Mortimer? Mortimer is also a phrenology enthusiast, and he wishes and hopes to someday have the opportunity to study Holmes's head. Well, other than a desire to get his hands on Holmes's skull, uh, why is the doctor there? That's what Holmes asks him, and Chapter 2 begins, with Mortimer presenting Holmes and Watson with a manuscript. The document, dated 1742, Baskerville Hall, reveals the myth of the Baskerville Curse. The Baskerville Curse? Mortimer reads from the document. At the time of the Great Revolution, Hugo Baskerville lorded over the Baskerville Mansion in Devonshire. Sex-crazed and lecherous, the infamous Hugo became obsessed with the local yeoman's daughter, whom he kidnapped one day. Trapped in an upstairs room, hearing the raucous drinking and carousing going on downstairs, the girl escaped with the help of the ivy-covered wall. She fled across the moorlands. Enraged at finding that his captive escaped, Hugo made a deal with the devil and released his hounds in pursuit of the young girl. Hugo's companions followed their drunken friend across the moorland and came upon the bodies of both Hugo and the girl. Hugo had just had his throat ripped out by, quote, a foul thing, a great black beast. And ever since, Mortimer reports, the supernatural hound has haunted the family. He claims the hound just recently killed Sir Charles Baskerville, the latest inhabitant of Baskerville Hall. And Katie, Dr. Mortimer has another document. He does. Mortimer unfolds the Devon County Chronicle of May 14, reading about Sir Charles's philanthropy and the circumstances surrounding his death. Having remade his family fortune in South African colonial ventures, Charles returned two years ago to the family estate and gave extensively to the local population. The Chronicle mentions the myth only to discount it, citing the testimony of Sir Charles's servants, Mr. Barrymore and Mrs. Barrymore, and that of Mortimer himself. Charles was found dead, the paper reports, at the site of his nightly walk down the so-called Yew Alley, which borders the haunted moorlands. Suspicious facts include Charles's apparent dawdling at the gate to the alley and his footsteps down the alley itself, which indicated tiptoeing or running. The paper points out Charles's poor health and the coroner's conclusion that the man died of a heart attack. The article goes on to insist that the next of kin, Sir Henry Baskerville, should come to take his uncle's post and continue his philanthropy. Mortimer interrupts the account, however, to indicate that those are the publicly known facts. Off the record, he admits that Sir Charles's poor health was a result of his fear of the family curse. Finally, Mortimer announces that the scene of the crime contained, in addition to Sir Charles's tiptoeing steps, quote, the footprints of a gigantic hound. Readers, there's a couple of things going on in this chapter. The, the Curse of the Baskervilles establishes many of the themes that will run throughout the rest of the book. The contrasting pairs of natural and supernatural, myth and reality. And even as Conan Doyle relates the deeds of a lecherous libertine, he invokes the Gothic traditions that are popular at this time. The idea of an ancient curse, a hound of hell, and a kind of divine retribution. This chapter also presents several sources of information about the case. The manuscript with the ancient curse, the paper, a modern piece of journalism, and Mortimer's counsel and reading of each one. The manuscript points to the easy but unrealistic supernatural answers to a perplexing problem, rather than the more complicated scientific explanations. The other piece of evidence, the newspaper article, only gets the story half right and concocts easy answers just like the manuscript. Right. If the manuscript took a credulous, superstitious stance, then the paper makes the opposite mistake, refusing to acknowledge a set of mysterious data. Holmes, excited by such a mysterious case, asks for more details from Mortimer. As it turns out, the paw prints indicated that the dog had not approached the body. High hedges and two locked gates bordered the yew alley. Mortimer suggests that the death was the result of some supernatural evil, and he describes his own interviews with the locals who had seen a fiery, spectral hound roaming the moors. Holmes is very surprised that a man of science, a doctor, should believe in the supernatural evil. The superstitious Mortimer states he only came to Holmes to ask what to do with Sir Henry, 
the sole heir, set to arrive at Waterloo Station in one hour. He mentions another heir, Sir Charles's brother Roger, but points out that he is presumed dead in South America. Holmes promises to consider the matter, telling Mortimer to pick up Sir Henry at the station and bring him to the office the next morning. The detective dismisses Mortimer and Watson and settles down to contemplate the situation, ruminating in his typical fashion over a bag of Bradley's strongest shag tobacco. Later that night, Watson returns to find the office thick with smoke. As Holmes suggests, quote, a concentrated atmosphere helps a concentration of thought. Holmes indicates his inclination to go through all the other possibilities before falling back on the supernatural one, and he speculates on the relevant questions. Given his infirmity and fear of the moor, Holmes wonders whom Charles was waiting for at the gate. The change in footprints, Holmes suggests, indicates running and not tiptoeing. Holmes also points out that Sir Charles was running in exactly the wrong direction, away from his house and any help that he might have found. The duo sets aside the case, and Holmes takes up his violin. All right, readers, with that start, let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll meet the newest Sir Baskerville, Sir Henry, and hopefully avoid meeting the gigantic hellhound of Baskerville Hall. You're listening to Novel Conversations. We'll be right back. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Welcome back. All right, readers, when we left, we had heard Dr. Mortimer's story of the death of Sir Charles Baskerville and the imminent arrival of Sir Henry Baskerville, and we learned of the curse of the Baskerville Hound. Greg, will you continue? So the next morning, Mortimer and the young Henry Baskerville arrive at 221B Baker Street. Though sturdy and weather-beaten, Sir Henry's expression showed that he was a gentleman. Just 24 hours in London, Sir Henry has already gotten involved in the mystery. He received an anonymous note of warning when he arrived at his hotel. The note said... As you value your life or your reason, keep away from the moor. For Holmes, a few facts stand out. The address is on a plain envelope and printed in rough writing, and the note itself is composed with words cut out of newspaper, except for the word moor. Holmes establishes that no one could have known where to reach Sir Henry, so the writer must be following him. Holmes quickly assesses the typeface and discerns that the words were cut out from yesterday's times. He goes on to suggest that the word more was handwritten because the author couldn't find that word in print. Astounded, the others listen on intently. Holmes continues, The author must be an educated man, since only the well-educated read the times. (laughs) As such, the roughly written address suggests the writer was trying to disguise his or her handwriting. In addition, the author must have been in a hurry, since the words are glued carelessly onto the paper. Dr. Mortimer, suddenly skeptical, questions Holmes's guesswork, and Holmes retorts that his methodology involves weighing probabilities and deciding on the likeliest solution. To prove it, he points out that the spluttered writing suggests a lack of ink, undoubtedly the result of a hotel pen and not a private one. Holmes even asserts that an investigation of hotel garbage around Charing Cross, where the letter was postmarked, should yield a torn-up copy of the Times. Announcing that he cannot glean anything else from the letter, the detective asks Henry whether anything else unusual has happened. Apparently, when Henry put out a new pair of boots to be shined, one boot was lost or stolen. The group debates whether the warning suggests a friend eager to protect the baronet or an enemy intent on scaring him off. Henry announces his intention to go to Baskerville Hall. And as soon as Sir Henry and Mortimer leave, Holmes leaps into action, intent on trailing the baronet to spot the letter writer whom Holmes suspects is trailing Sir Henry. Sure enough, the stakeout reveals a suspicious stranger in a cab. But the moment Watson spies his bushy black beard... The villain hurries off. The spy, Holmes suggests, is a worthy rival given his choice of a cab, a supremely well-suited getaway car. Holmes considers his own performance subpar. He let the spy know that he was seen. The detective does announce that he has caught the cab's number, 2704, 
and directs Watson into a nearby messenger office. Once inside, Holmes greets the manager, a former client, and asks for the man's son, Cartwright. Holmes instructs Cartwright to inspect the garbage of all the hotels in the Charing Cross region in search of the mutilated times. Meanwhile, he tells Watson they will investigate cab number 2704 before meeting Sir Henry for lunch. Cartwright offers an interesting glimpse into the mindset of upper-middle-class England during Holmes's time. As an educated person, Holmes expects not only respect, but also service from his social inferiors, and he usually gets it. The boy agrees to go rummaging about in the trash for Holmes. These two chapters introduce us to more puzzling clues, right? The cut-and-paste warning letter, the stolen boot, and this mysterious stranger. The appearance of the mysterious stranger highlights another of the more prevalent themes in the story— That of disguised identity, and readers will certainly come back to that a little bit later. Arriving at Sir Henry's hotel, the pair runs into a flustered Sir Henry, enraged at the theft of a second boot, this time an old one. Hmm. Denouncing the hotel staff, Sir Henry is surprised at Holmes's suggestion that the thefts may indeed have something to do with the case. At lunch, Holmes, Watson, Henry, and Mortimer discuss Sir Henry's decision to go to Devonshire, and Holmes assents given the extreme improbability of unmasking the stalker in London. Holmes asks if there is anyone up at Devonshire with a full black beard and learns that the butler, Mr. Barrymore, fits that description. Intent on assessing whether Barrymore is at home or in London, Holmes sends a telegraph to Barrymore that will be delivered to his hand or else returned to the sender. Barrymore, Mortimer relates, stood to inherit 500 pounds and a cushy, work-free setup upon Charles's death. Asking about other heirs and beneficiaries, Holmes learns that Mortimer himself received 1,000 pounds and Sir Henry got 740,000. Holmes declares that Sir Henry needs a more attentive bodyguard at Baskerville Hall than Mortimer and surprises everyone by suggesting that Watson accompany the baronet. Holmes insists that Watson keep him updated. And while they are getting ready to leave for their office... They are surprised by a cry from Sir Henry. Diving under a cabinet, Henry discovers the first boot he lost. The new one, despite the fact that Mortimer searched the lunchroom earlier that afternoon. Hmm. Back at 221B Baker Street, the detectives soon hear by wire that Barrymore is indeed in Devonshire, and that young Cartwright has not found the mutilated newspaper. However, the cab number proves useful. The cabman himself, irked and irate at what he assumes is a complaint, arrives at the office. Holmes assures the man that he just contacted the cab company to get some information and promises him half a sovereign if he cooperates. As with the young Cartwright, Holmes handles the irate cab driver, buys him off, and ensures his total cooperation. The detective's interaction with people of lower classes suggests that they do not respect those people whom they consider of a lower social or economic status. Holmes gets the man's name and asks about his mysterious morning fare. The cabman announces that the fare called himself Sherlock Holmes and was nondescript and ordered him to do just what the detective saw. Holmes is amused at his adversary's wit. On the morning of their departure, Holmes offers Watson some advice suggesting that the doctor report facts only and not conjectures. In enlisting Watson, Holmes plays his own game of disguised identity. Watson will act as Holmes' secret ears and eyes. Thus, Holmes will be there through the conduit of Watson. Holmes also tells Watson to keep a close watch on everyone he meets. Assuring that Watson has his gun and that Sir Henry will never go out alone, Holmes bids the group adieu. Watson's newfound authority allows the novel to present a series of clues through his letters to Holmes. And learning the clues before Holmes gives us a chance to try our hand at solving the mystery. Watson has the opportunity to stumble along with us, suggesting theories that may or may not be true. On the trip, the baronet admires the scenery of his birthplace. Soon, the group spots the fabled moorland, a gray, dreamlike expanse. At the station, the group is met by a pair of gun-toting police officers on guard for an escaped convict and by a set of Baskerville servants. The ride to the hall offers a beautiful, scenic view— but always with the foreboding moor in the background. Asking about the armed guards, the group learns from the coachman that the dastardly criminal named Selden, the Notting Hill murderer, has just recently escaped from prison. Sobered and silent, the party finally reaches the Baskerville Hall. 
All right, now wait, readers, are we buying the crazed murderer loose on the moor story? The so-called Notting Hill murderer does pop out of nowhere. In a novel that satires the easy answer by providing obvious clues, the manuscript, the county chronicle, we get the easiest answer of all, a murderer on the loose. Yes, but at the same time, it seems jarring and improbable to count the convict among the suspects because of the structure of the book. First, there's the setup of a curse and a hound. And second, there are still over 100-some-odd pages left in the book. The murderer on the loose is dangled in front of us as a red herring, an unlikely candidate to be dismissed, but who just might be the culprit after all. At Baskerville Hall, Barrymore and his wife introduce themselves and take in the baggage. Once inside, Watson and Sir Henry learn of the Barrymore's intention to leave Henry's service as soon as he gets settled. Citing their sadness and fear at Charles's death, the Barrymores admit that they will never feel relaxed at Baskerville Hall. And that night, once in bed, Watson has trouble sleeping and he hears a woman crying. The next morning, Watson mentions that crying he heard the previous evening. Sir Henry admits that he also heard the sobbing, but that he thought it was just a dream. Asking Barrymore about the incident, Watson notices that the butler gets flustered. He later learns that the man's suggestion that it could not have been his wife crying is a lie. Watson sees the woman's red and swollen eyes. Watson wonders at the butler's lie and at the woman's tears, speculating that perhaps Barrymore was the bearded stranger back in London. He decides to make sure Holmes's telegraph was actually delivered into the butler's own hands, so he takes a long walk out to the Grimpen postmaster. And, and after questioning the postmaster's delivery boy, Watson learns that the telegram was actually delivered to Mrs. Barrymore, who claimed that her husband was busy upstairs. The boy did not see Mr. Barrymore himself. Confused by the back and forth of the investigation, Watson wishes that Holmes were free to come to Devonshire. Just then, a small stranger carrying a butterfly net comes up, calling Watson by his name. Mr. Jack Stapleton of Mary Pitt House introduces himself and excuses his casual country manners. He asks all kinds of questions about Holmes, about the case, about Sir Henry. He expresses his concern that the baronet should continue his uncle's good works. He also remarks at the silliness of the local superstition and at the same time suggests that there must have been something to scare Charles to death. Watson's surprised that Stapleton knew of Charles's condition, but the naturalist explains that Dr. Mortimer clued him in. Watson is equally put off by Stapleton's subsequent mention of Sherlock Holmes, but he quickly realizes that his friend's celebrity status has preceded him, and he tells the inquisitive Stapleton that Holmes is occupied in London. Watson refuses to tell Stapleton anything specific about the case, and the naturalist lauds his discretion. Walking alongside the moor, Stapleton points out the mystery and danger of the place, highlighting the Great Grimpen Mire, a stretch where a sort of quicksand can suck up either man or beast. Just then, the two spot a pony being swallowed up by the sand, even though, as Stapleton says, the pony knows his way around well enough not to get into trouble. And then the two hear a low, sad moan that the locals suspect is the howling of the Hound of the Baskervilles. Stapleton also points out some low stone buildings along the moor, the residences of ancient Neolithic man. Suddenly, Stapleton goes bounding off after a butterfly, and Watson finds himself face to face with a stunning, dark beauty who has walked up unnoticed. She quickly introduces herself as Stapleton's sister. She cuts off Watson's introduction by telling him to go back to London and insisting that Watson say nothing to her brother. And reappearing at Watson's side, Mr. Stapleton discovers that his sister had thought Watson was Sir Henry, and proper introductions are made. The three make their way to Mary Pitt House, and Watson remarks that the spot seems a strange and melancholy place for a pair to choose. Stapleton suggests that they get along fine, though his sister seems unconvinced. The naturalist tells Watson of a previous career as a schoolmaster up north, but insists that he prefers the opportunity the Moors provide for collecting and inspecting insects. And as Watson leaves, Stapleton asks that he tell Sir Henry of his intention to pay a visit. On the way home, Watson again encounters Miss Stapleton, who has run to catch up with him. She tells him to forget her warning— though Watson presses her for more details. Miss Stapleton tries to play off her outburst, claiming to be concerned about the curse and eager not to con contradict her brother, who wants a charitable Baskerville in residence. Watson is more confused than ever. Of course, since this is a mystery, we wonder whether there's a reason for Doyle to mention Stapleton's past as a schoolmaster. 
and the warning of Miss Stapleton meant for Sir Henry. Greg, what about Beryl Stapleton? Well, Conan Doyle spends a lot of time describing her dark beauty, her different way of speaking. In appearance and attitude, she seems to be the exact opposite of her brother. I guess these facts are supposed to fit neatly into the rubric of clues that end up revealing who the Stapletons really are and what this whole mystery means. But if we take Conan Doyle's depictions of young Cartwright and the cabman as examples of English classism, I'd argue that Beryl's identity and the way the novel treats her reveals the different assumptions and stereotypes about ethnicity that colored Conan Doyle's and Holmes's England. And as chapter 8 begins, Watson tells us that from this point on, the story will be told as it was reported to Holmes himself in letter form. But first, let's take a break here, and when we come back, we'll continue to unwrap these series of mysteries. The death of Sir Charles, the convict Selden, the odd Stapletons, and of course, the curse of the Hound of the Baskervilles. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading! Welcome back. When we left, the clues and mysteries were piling up. First, the convict. Greg? Watson relates the status of the escaped con, who has not been seen in two weeks. The relieved locals assume he has fled the area since there's no food to sustain him on the moor. And the Stapletons? Watson alludes to a budding romance between Sir Henry and Miss Stapleton, Uh whom he characterizes as exotic. He points out that Mr. Stapleton expresses disapproval of Sir Henry's interest in his sister. Watson goes on to relate his meeting with another neighbor, Mr. Franklin of Laughter Hall. I like this guy. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Franklin is a good-natured, if quarrelsome man, who likes to sue people. So this is you. This is (laughs) (laughs) No wonder you like him. In a long, old, previous previous world. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Franklin is a good-natured, if quarrelsome, man who likes to sue people for the sake of suing. Watson notes his interest in astronomy and the telescope atop his house, often used for searching the moorlands for the escaped convict. Mr. Franklin serves as a much-needed dose of comic relief in the otherwise grim tale. He talks of the locals burning him in effigy or carrying him through the streets depending on whether he has done them a service or a disservice on that particular day. You know, at the same time, the character of Franklin satirizes the idea of entitlement and hierarchy, although it's not clear which side he's on. (laughs) Franklin's gratuitous lawsuits aimed at protecting what he sees as his rights suggests that Conan Doyle has a humorous take on this character's actions and his opinions. In his letters to Holmes, Watson mentions the telegraph did not make it into Barrymore's hands, and he describes Sir Henry's questioning of the butler. Barrymore admits that he did not receive the wire from the postman himself, but insists he was indeed at home that day. Watson reiterates his suspicions that Barrymore, whose wife he has seen once again crying, is up to no good. And indeed, late one night, Watson is awakened by the sound of footsteps outside his door. Peeking out, he sees Barrymore, silhouetted by a candle he is holding, skulking down the hall. As Watson follows him, he sees the butler go up to a window and hold his candle aloft, as if signaling to someone. Suddenly, he lets out an impatient groan and puts out the light. Watson offers no speculation, leaving the theorizing to Holmes. Having investigated the window that Barrymore used, Watson determines that this particular window has the best view of the moor. Watson suggests his suspicion of a love affair between Barrymore and a country lass, which would explain the wife's crying. Informing Sir Henry, who also claims to have heard Barrymore's late-night activity, Watson plots a late-night stakeout to catch Barrymore in the act. Meanwhile, Henry's romance with Stapleton hits a rough patch. Henry, going out to meet her, excuses Watson of his duties as bodyguard, lest the doctor turn into chaperone as well. Don't want one of those. Mm -hmm. All the same, Watson trails the baronet and sees him walking with Miss Stapleton. As Henry bends in for a kiss, Mr. Stapleton arrives on the scene, yelling and carrying on inexplicably. As the Stapletons depart... Watson reveals himself to Henry, who wonders whether Stapleton might be crazy. 
When we get a glimpse of Sir Henry's romantic life in Chapter 9, the themes of entitlement and hierarchy reappear. Talking with Watson about his failure to woo Miss Stapleton, Henry is utterly baffled that the non-noble Beryl and her brother would reject so good a marriage. In assuming his own suitability, Henry acts as if he is entitled to a marriage with a woman of a lower class. By doing so, he mimics the assumption of his ancestor, Hugo, who started the curse when he ignored that entitlement to dignity and to self-determination of even the lowliest of lower classes. He thinks himself a worthy match for Miss Stapleton, though he admits that on this occasion she refused to talk of love and only offer mysterious warning. Later that day, Stapleton meets Sir Henry at home to apologize for his overprotective nature and invites him to dinner. Meanwhile, Watson and Henry's stakeout takes two nights of vigilance. On the second night, the two hear Barrymore and follow him to his window. Watson watches as Sir Henry confronts him. Shocked and bewildered, the butler tries to furnish an excuse, but Sir Henry insists on the truth. As Barrymore waffles, protesting, Watson goes to the window, figuring that another person out on the moor must be matching Barrymore's signal. Sure enough, a light shows up across the moor, and the butler refuses to talk, even at the expense of his job. Suddenly, Mrs. Barrymore arrives and explains everything. The light on the moor is a signal from the escaped convict, who turns out to be her brother. Hmm. The Barrymores have been feeding and clothing the man so he does not starve out on the moor. Excusing the Barrymores, Henry and Watson determined to go out and capture the convict so as to protect the community. On their way toward the light, though, the pair hears a loud moaning and wonders whether they should continue their adventure. Watson even admits that the locals suspect the braying to be the call of the Hound of the Baskervilles. Frightened but determined, Sir Henry insists they proceed. When the pair finally reaches the flickering candlelight, they spy a small crevice in some rocks where candle and convict are carefully hidden. The convict turns out to be all the two might have expected, haggard, unkempt, and animal-like. When Watson moves in for the kill, though, the man manages to escape across the moor. Just then, as they make their way home, Watson catches sight of a lone figure, silhouetted against the moor. But as suddenly as the tall, mysterious figure appeared, the figure is gone. There are several clues presented in these chapters, but little analysis. Uh, At the end of chapter 9, when Watson leaves it to Holmes to figure things out, he's also leaving it to us, as readers, to come up with our own theories. Musing on the mysteries of the case, Watson dismisses the supernatural explanation, but admits that his common sense offers no obvious solution. Where might a living and breathing hound hide by day, and who is the mysterious shadow out on the moor? Watson determines to find out what this man might know and whether he is the same person who provided the warning back in London. The next chapter gives Watson and us some new information and some new clues. Sir Henry argues with Barrymore over the chase of his brother-in-law, Selden. Watson and Henry worry that the man is a public danger. Nonetheless, Barrymore assures them that Selden is just biding his time until a ship arrives from South America and that he will not commit any more crimes. They agree not to tell the police, and Barrymore thanks them by offering another clue. Apparently, Sir Charles went to the gate on the night he died to meet a woman, and Barrymore tells of his wife's discovery of a charred letter in the fireplace, signed L.L., requesting a late-night meeting. Greg, L.L.? Well, the next day, Watson learns from Mortimer that Laura Lyons, daughter of Franklin the Crank, which (laughs) it should just be Frank the Crank, right? (laughs) Mortimer goes on to explain that Laura married an artist against her father's will and that both husband and father have since abandoned her. In the meantime, both Stapleton and Sir Charles have come to her aid by offering her alms. As for the silhouette on the moor, Watson learns from Barrymore that Selden has seen him too. He appears to be a gentleman, and he lives in one of the Neolithic huts along the moor, getting his food delivered by a young boy. And now we do get to meet L.L., Laura Lyons. Mm -hmm. Deciding that an informal visit might be the most productive, Watson leaves Sir Henry at home and heads for Coombe Tracy. At Laura Lyon's apartment, Watson meets the beautiful brunette and announces his interest in the matter of Sir Charles' death. Suspicious but finally cooperative, Laura admits that Sir Charles supported her financially and that she wrote to him once or twice. But when Watson presses the issue, she claims to have had very little to do with him personally and that it was Stapleton who told Sir Charles about her situation. Watson mentions the burned letter with her initials, and Laura admits to having written it. When Watson asks what happened that night, Laura claims to have missed the appointment, but she refuses to say why. All she will disclose is the letter's content. 
an appeal for alms from Sir Charles to get her out of her bad marriage. She also adds that in the interim, she has gotten help from someone else. Frustrated, Watson takes his leave, wondering what Laura might be holding back. Meanwhile, he determines to seek for the mysterious stranger on the moor. On his way home, Watson bumps into Mr. Franklin and agrees to have a glass of wine with him. As Franklin prattles on about his various legal matters, Watson realizes that the man has also spotted the stranger on the moor, thinking him to be the escaped convict. The man Franklin saw had a young boy bringing him food, just as Barrymore described. Watson prods Franklin for more information, and just then, the man spots someone out on the moor and goes to his telescope. Sure enough, they see a young boy who is glancing behind him as if to make sure no one is watching. Watson declines Franklin's offer for another drink and makes his way to where he saw the boy. Finding the stranger's hut, Watson decides to wait for his return. Examining the contents of the hut, the doctor discovers a note that says he has gone to Coombe Tracy, and he realizes that he is also being followed. Finally, Watson hears footsteps outside and a sudden greeting. Watson quickly realizes that Holmes is the man greeting him. After a long period of narration by Watson, the return of Holmes, like the unexpected appearance of the convict, can seem a bit jarring. At the same time, this section reveals Holmes' own game of disguised identity. Holmes shows that he, a gentleman, lived like a convict. He looked for food and lived in a bare-bones dwelling. And in talking with Watson, Holmes starts to add information only he had, and he does answer some of the clues. And we learn quite a lot. We learn that Stapleton is the culprit and that, in effect, all our speculations were useless since we did not have the key piece of information, Stapleton's identity and marital status. Beryl, the woman masquerading as Stapleton's sister, is actually his wife. And we should mention, readers, that this information comes to us just as quickly as we just delivered it. <laughs> Holmes just tells Watson, it's the Stapletons. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, Beryl is the wife, not the sister. Yeah, Watson also learns from Holmes that Laura and Mr. Stapleton share a close relationship. Of course they do. Shocked at these revelations, the doubting Watson demands proof. Holmes tells of his own investigation into Stapleton's past and his career as a schoolmaster up north. Stapleton, it becomes clear, is the enemy they have been after. And he has been using his wife to get at Sir Henry and Laura Lyons. He seduced Lyons and used her to lure Charles onto the moor. Watson wonders why Holmes was hiding on the moor in the first place. The detective explains that he hid so the enemies would not know of his direct involvement. Holmes lied to Watson, he says, so that no one would discover him should Watson decide to compare notes or bring his master some food. The events quickly follow one after the other, and the finale comes at an appropriate pace. If Watson's clue gathering allowed us a chance to participate, Holmes's tight-lipped detection builds up the suspense even after the mystery's solved. Now... As readers, it's about what Holmes will do to catch the criminal. Watson and Holmes decide to visit Laura Lyons again to tell her of Stapleton's ruse and, hopefully, to shift her loyalties. A sudden scream is heard on the moor, and, upon investigation, they discover the body of Sir Henry, or at least what appears to be a body in his clothing. The dead man is Selden. As it turns out, Barrymore delivered a bunch of Sir Henry's old clothes to the convict. The hound had sniffed Henry's stolen boot back in London and had attacked the right clothes on the wrong man. Ah, the missing boot. The missing old boot. I I guess there was Mm. no scent on the missing new boot. Mm Mm-hmm. Just then, Stapleton shows up, assuming that the dead man is Sir Henry. When he discovers the truth, he stammers, "Who? who's this? When Watson wonders why the naturalist assumed it was Sir Henry, Stapleton admits it was because he had asked him to come over. Holmes diffuses the situation by suggesting that the convict, Selden, must have just fallen and broken his neck, and goes on to tell Stapleton he intends to go home tomorrow, since he is not interested in the myths that plague the particular case. Suspicious but reassured, Stapleton goes home and the detectives head for the hall. Walking and talking on their way home, Watson and Holmes marvel at the self-control of their enemy, who held his tongue even after it became clear his hound had killed the wrong man. They wonder, now that the villain has seen Holmes, whether he will become more cautious or more desperate. Watson suggests that they arrest him at once, but Holmes reminds him that they have 
yet to establish the proof they need for the conviction. Holmes has hope for tomorrow's interview with Lyons, but he also claims to have another plan in the works. After some conversation with Sir Henry and the sad announcement of Selden's death to his sister, Holmes spies a portrait on the wall and learns that the thin cavalier in question is none other than Hugo Baskerville himself. And later that night, Holmes explains his interest to Watson, demonstrating the remarkable similarity between Hugo and Stapleton, thus establishing Stapleton's motive. As a Baskerville relative, Stapleton has designs on the inheritance. Aha, the long-lost brother Roger. So again, this section recalls the themes of mistaken identity and entitlement. First, the convict is mistaken for Sir Henry because he's in his clothes, and as a result, the hound attacks him. Also, Holmes observes Stapleton's close resemblance to Hugo Baskerville. The villain's noble birth seems to make sense because he feels like he's entitled to a large sum of money. And finally, Beryl's rejection of Henry now makes more sense to us as readers, since she's not a lower-class woman rejecting a higher-class man, but rather, she is already taken. The next morning, Holmes tells Sir Henry to keep his dinner appointment with Stapleton, excusing himself and Watson. Holmes tells the baronet that he and his friend are going to London, and though Sir Henry is understandably alarmed, Holmes tells him to trust him. He also insists that the baronet deliver the same message to Stapleton and that he walk home alone across the moor after dinner. Meanwhile, Holmes and Watson head over to Laura Lyon's place, and Holmes tells her of Stapleton's secret marriage. Shocked and visibly upset, Laura demands proof, and Holmes produces a photo of husband and wife. Laura spills the beans. Stapleton had offered to marry her if she got a divorce, an endeavor that would require Sir Charles's assistance. The naturalist wrote Laura's letters to Charles and then insisted she miss the appointment, suggesting that he himself would pay the expenses. Stapleton even convinced Laura to keep quiet, telling her that she might get in trouble. The detectives approach Merripit House, and Holmes insists that they tiptoe so they are not heard. Hidden behind some rocks, they observe Sir Henry and Mr. Stapleton chatting over coffee. Sir Henry seems nervous, perhaps pondering the long walk home across the moor. Just then, Stapleton gets up and heads outside, letting himself into a small outhouse where the hidden group hears some strange scuffling. Meanwhile, a thick fog starts to settle. And of course it does. <laughs> and it spreads across the moor, and the group gets nervous as the visibility gets worse and worse. Once the fog engulfs the path from Mary Pitt to Baskerville Hall, the detectives will not be able to watch Henry walk home, nor protect him from the hound attacks. Once Henry finally gets going, the fog's getting thicker and Leon's <laughs> getting larger. <laughs> the fog covers the path, and the detectives hear the hound before they see it. When it emerges from the mist, the hound turns out to be an immense, iridescent, fire-breathing beast, the very picture of the Baskerville myth. Stunned, the detectives only shoot one round of bullets as the hound nips at Henry's heels, but the shots do not kill the beast, and it leaps at Henry's throat. Fortunately, Holmes manages to unload five more rounds at just the right moment, and the hound collapses. Examining the baronet, they discover no injuries. Getting a chance to finally examine the animal, the detectives determine it to be a bloodhound-mastiff mix, as big as a lion and covered with phosphorus to make it glow to make it seem the hound was on fire. So once again, the detectives encounter a kind of disguised identity, discovering the artifice that made the hound look supernatural. Rushing back to the house, the detectives discover Mrs. Stapleton bound and gagged. Mrs. Stapleton makes sure Sir Henry is safe and the hound is dead, and then informs the detectives of her husband's hiding place in the Grimpen Mire, the deadly marshland where he kept his hound. Deciding that the fog is too thick to pursue the villain through the treacherous mire, Holmes and Watson head back to Baskerville Hall with Sir Henry. And the next day, Mrs. Stapleton leads them through the mire, eager to capture her abusive husband. The Stapletons had placed sticks in the mire to mark the spot where it was safe to walk, and the detectives follow the path until they come upon an object, partially submerged. It turns out to be Sir Henry's black boot. The old boot. Hmm which Stapleton used to set his hound on Henry's trail and then threw to the ground as he made his escape. As for Stapleton himself, his footprints are nowhere to be found beyond a certain point, and the detectives decide that the great Grimpen Mire has engulfed him. When they reach his lair, they discover the place where the hound was kept, hidden away but still audible for miles around. The villain brought his hound to Merripit only that last day so dangerous was the risk of discovery. The detectives also find the phosphorus used to make the beast glow, scary enough to frighten Sir Charles to death. 
Back in London, in the final chapter titled The Retrospection, Henry and Mortimer call on the detectives to get the full rundown of the confusing case. Holmes explains that Stapleton was actually the son of Roger Baskerville, Charles's younger brother who moved to South America and was presumed dead. Stapleton, or Sir Rogers Baskerville Jr., lived in South America and married Beryl Garcia of Costa Rica, a dark beauty masquerading as his sister. Having embezzled public money, Roger fled to England, changed his name, and established a school up north. When the school folded, Roger had to take off again, this time heading to Devonshire, where he had heard of his stake in a large inheritance. Having made friends with Sir Charles, Roger heard of the myth of the hound and of Charles's bad heart. To get the superstitious Charles out alone on the moor, Stapleton tried to enlist his wife, but she refused. He happened, however, to meet Laura Lyons, and he told her he would marry her if she got a divorce. Convincing her to get the necessary money from Charles, he made her miss the late-night appointment and unleashed his hound. Though Laura suspected Stapleton, she protected him out of love. Once Henry arrived on the scene, Stapleton took his untrustworthy wife with him to London, where he trailed the baronet and she tried to warn him. Stapleton also made a point of stealing one of Henry's shoes to give his hound the baronet's scent, but the first boot he stole was brand new, not yet worn by Sir Henry, and unsuitable for its intended purpose. Holmes mentions that Mrs. Stapleton's letter smelled of perfume, something we were not told, and that the suggestion of a gentlewoman made him think right from the start of the Stapletons. Going on to investigate and ultimately establish Stapleton as the enemy, Holmes nonetheless needed proof, so he used Henry as bait to catch Stapleton red-handed. Another example of author Conan Doyle withholding certain information from us as readers Mm -hmm. so he could make Holmes look good. (laughs) And Mrs. Stapleton, for her part, both loved and feared her husband, and she was willing to warn Henry but not to reveal her husband's involvement. Stapleton himself encouraged the romance, but could not help a jealous outburst the day he saw the two talking intimately. On the night Henry came to dinner, Mrs. Stapleton realized her husband had his hound in the outhouse, and she confronted him. He revealed his relationship with Laura, and when she reacted, he tied her up and gagged her. You know, the juxtaposition of the plot-driven climax of the hound's appearance and the thematic climax of its unmasking clearly reveals the ways in which Conan Doyle uses a kind of gothic folktale tradition in service of his story. And in the end, the mystery is exciting, but closure is comforting. And so ends the story of The Hound of the Baskervilles. Katie, Gregory, let's take a final break here and then head into our last segment, where I'd like to ask the two of you to share a moment or a character or perhaps a quote that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. And we'll be right back. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Welcome back. You're listening to Novel Conversations. We just finished a conversation about the novel The Hound of the Baskervilles by author Conan Doyle, and now I'd like to ask the two of you to share a moment or a character or a quote that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. Uh, Katie, do you have something for us? This time was not my first time reading the book, and so since it was already fresh on my mind, it gave me the ability to pay attention to the clues that we were given and I was able to tell which ones would be useful and which ones wouldn't, or what would give it away and what would lead us away from it. And um, I think that the way it's written keeps the reader's interest at every angle, and they're trying to glean every clue that they can. As you mentioned, he keeps some only for Holmes that he reveals at the end, but I love the way that as you read it, you get to solve the story as you go along. Gregory, how about you? Do you have something? I think it's just so funny how we're introduced to the relationship between Holmes and Watson. Uh, it's on, I mean, page two. I know that this is not the first time that we've you know, seen these two together. But when Watson's making his first observations of the walking stick and Holmes is just completely just, yeah, oh, everything's great. This is fantastic. Uh, I've got a quote here. I'm afraid, my dear Watson, that most of your conclusions were erroneous. 
When I said you stimulated me, I meant, to be frank, that in noting your fallacies, I was occasionally guided towards the truth. And it's just so, like, immediately he's just torn down. And then Watson takes over the story. Holmes just disappears. This is Watson's story for a a large portion of it. But then Holmes does sweep in and wraps it all up for us. Right. Well, But Holmes also kind of makes better on that kind of relationship later when he's found having been disguised on the mire. And he tells on Watson- On the moor? On the moor, sorry. He tells uh, Watson that like, no, I kept all your letters. They were fantastic. Everything you did was exactly right. You know, so he's he, he definitely, he definitely, you know, trails him along. <laughs> and he does trust him because he, he sends does. him to Absolutely. go with him. And we've all mentioned that by using Watson this way, Conan Doyle gives us a chance to participate in the solving of Mm -hmm. the mystery as we learn things with Watson. And actually, that goes to the piece that I wanted to bring up in the story. I mentioned that when we finished our novel, the mystery was exciting, but that the closure was comforting. I do want to mention to our listeners that while Holmes gives us all the comfort we need and a synopsis of the entire story and seemingly ties up all the loose ends and claims to have known right from the start that the Stapletons were the ones to blame, interesting, though, the wrap-up is not that neat. Henry is headed off to calm his nerves on a vacation. Henry and Beryl do not get married and live happily ever (laughs) after. It's not even clear if Stapleton is actually dead. He's just disappeared onto the moors, assumed to be in the mire, but we don't really know. Uh, It has been considered uh, by other readers that perhaps uh, Conan Doyle considered bringing Stapleton back in a later story. But what a man may do in the future is a hard question to answer. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. If you recall, I mentioned at the beginning that Holmes had already died in a in a subsequent right. story, right. and Conan Doyle brings him back. Yeah. So I think that's why some people presumed mm-hmm. oh, that perhaps that Stapleton might right. come back in a, in a future novel as well. All right. With that said, I'd like to end our conversation about the novel The Hound of the Baskervilles by author Conan Doyle. Katie, Gregory, I do want to thank both of you for coming in and having this conversation with me today. I hope you both enjoyed it as much as I did. Of course. I did. It was great. Thank you. Thanks, Frank. I'm Frank Lavallo, and you've been listening to Novel Conversations. Thanks for listening to Novel Conversations. If you're enjoying the show, please give us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us on Instagram at Novel Conversations. Follow us to stay up to date on upcoming episodes and in anything else we've got in the works. Special thanks to our readers today, Katie Porchile and Gregory James. Our sound designer and producer is Noah Fouts, and Grace Sienna Longfellow is our audio engineer. Our executive producers are Bridget Coyne and Joan Andrews. I'm Frank Lavallo. Thank you for listening. I hope you soon find yourself in a novel conversation all your own. Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.